I certainly wasn't seeking to be a hero, but I also realize why people feel the way they do about this event. I certainly don't want to diminish their gift to me of their gratitude. Airline pilot and hero, Sully Sullenberger. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. On a cold January morning in 2009, a U.S. Airways flight took off from New York's LaGuardia Airport. At the controls that morning, veteran Captain Chesley Sullenberger, whom everyone just called Sully. Moments after takeoff, the plane hit a flock of Canada geese, disabling the plane's engines. Unable to reach any nearby airports, Sully made a decision. He safely guided the plane to a landing in the Hudson River, where the plane stayed afloat long enough to get every single person off that plane safe and alive. Sully was hailed as a hero, and a few months later, he wrote a book about it. And that's how I met him. So here now, from the fall of 2009, Chesley Sully Sullenberger. So many people think that people in the public eye, their life began the first instant that CNN had that thing across the bottom, you know, breaking news. That's not when your life began. Certainly not. And in fact, it's a good thing that's not when my life began, because in order to be prepared not only for that event, but for everything that came after, I needed a lifetime of experience. And that's what I talk about in the book. The book is about much more than the event, although in my book I bring the reader inside my head and reveal for the first time many things that people don't know about the event. My thought process, how I made these important life or death decisions in seconds. But it's also about how my life leading up to it was influenced by important people, by important events. And it was these things that shaped me and taught me what I needed to know to deal with that that day. You talk in the book about, they call him Lucky Lindy, but he was prepared Lindy. You were prepared Sully. I'd done the hard work. See, there wasn't time after the birds struck the engines and disabled them to learn what I needed to know. I had to have already spent decades and tens of thousands of hours you know, fine honing the fundamental skills, the in-depth knowledge, and the, and the judgment that comes only from great experience. I had to already have that in the bank that I could draw on. You had to be a stick-and-rudder man. Yeah, just like L.T. Cook, Jr., my first instructor when I was 16 years old on that grass strip in Sherman, Texas. Now, I, later in the book, also you mentioned you had a lot of experience with gliders. In a case like this, where you essentially have a giant glider... I'm assuming that experience must have been a help, too. Well, I think everything I'd done in flying in, in my life had helped in some way. But I, people ask me that question a lot, and the answer is, quite frankly, I, those airplanes are so light and are so slow. The flying characteristics are very different than a modern, heavier, high-speed jet airplane. And so what ha helped me more was just paying attention to all the different elements that go into a, a smooth flight on thousands of flights and carefully managing the energy of the airplane in terms of the height and the speed. That helped me more. I can't even, I, I, from the first day that it was on CNN breaking news, I can't even begin to imagine what it must feel like. Not only that you're in jeopardy, and your crew is in jeopardy. That's bad enough. But now you got a whole behind you, a whole plane full of people who until that moment had no idea anything was wrong, and their fates are in your hands. Well, I'd gotten used to that idea. I'd had many years of experience to, to know how to take good care of them. And I'd spent 
you know, 42 years learning how to take good care of them. And we take that care on every flight. So in that sense, it was nothing out of the ordinary for me to take care of them that day also. I see you struggling on so many pages in this book with the demands of a career that you love, that you've been planning for literally since you were a boy, versus the responsibilities of a husband and a father, and realizing you're missing so much of their lives. Yeah, I'm the father of, of young women. They're 16 and 14 now, and for much, for all, well, for all their lives, I've been gone for over half of it every month. And so, you know, my wife has described those times as the pilot moments when I come home and I see something that I've noticed for the first time, but that may have been going on for a long time that I just haven't been there to see. I think a lot of people will relate to that, people who are workaholics or they have found their their passion and they're following the passion, but there's always there's always a trade-off. There's always a balance you have to strike. And balance is the correct word because both before January and after – We've been searching for the right balance between work and life, between work and family. And that struggle has only increased since January 15th because of the attention paid to this story and the demands as well as the opportunities that have come our way because of it. It's almost like you're walking a tightrope and everything's fine. You've got your balance. But then somebody shines a really bright light in your face and tosses you a big bag of money. And, and you have to juggle all these, these the, the stuff that's really good, but it can also throw you off balance. I think it was more like a fire hose being pointed in our direction. <laughs> it, you know, it, it, you're right. This story, something about this story, uh, the way it happened, where it happened, the time in the history of the world when this happened, it was a time when people were looking for good news. They were wondering if good could still be done in the world or was everything about greed. And I think that something about this story was life-affirming. It gave people hope again. I think it reminded people of the potential that exists for good, not only in the world, but in each of us. But as you point out in the book, we've become, I guess we've become complacent passengers. We expect things to be perfect. We expect a great safety record, you, all you guys should be proud of, and we don't expect something to go wrong. Well, we all work very hard to make every flight safe and routine and unremarkable. But I think what people sometimes need reminding of and may have forgotten is how hard it is and how much dedication and hard work it takes on every flight to make aviation as ultra safe as it is. And it also requires renewed investments. We can't rely on the investments made in the past by, by previous generations. We have to continue to make new investments going forward and investments not only in technology, not only in the systems, but in people. The airline industry is in trouble, though. I mean, you've mentioned that at many points in your book. Financially, uh, after September 11th, it took a big hit. Uh, what is the future if new, because you talk in the book about kids being more interested in their iPods than watching what's going on in the cockpit. What, what is our future if youngsters are not, don't have that same passion that you had as a youngster? Well, that's one of my concerns also is if we as a society don't value this profession sufficiently, Will we be able to, in the future, attract the best and the brightest? I think there will always be people who are willing to take these jobs and fill these pilot seats. But we need to make sure it's people who have the fundamental skills, the knowledge, the experience, and the judgment. If we don't value this enough, it may not be those people. It may be someone else. I was shocked in your book when you talk about how little some pilots are paid. I mean, I used to... My wife used to check out groceries at Kroger's and made more. 
Well, the joke in, around the industry is that it used to be that pilots were one step below astronauts, and now we feel like we're one step above bus drivers, but bus drivers have a better pension. So, it, it you know, it's it's hard. It's a hard job to do very well. If it were easy, anybody could do it, but that's simply not the case. And so we need to remind ourselves what really is at stake, that there are risks involved that have to be managed very well to, to make aviation so safe, and, and we have to to invest in people to have those those risks managed properly. I'm reminded of something Dave Barry once told me. He said, you know, when you go into a plane, you want the pilot to look like Walter Cronkite. But he said, as you get older, you realize they look more like the Beastie Boys. <laughs> well, some of the passengers remarked as they were boarding, they told me later that uh, they were glad I had lots of white hair. That 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 was a good thing. So I'm I'm fortunate to be in a profession where it's a good thing to have lots of white hair. Do you have more now after January? I think it's about the same. <laughs> I actually dropped a few pounds, but my hair is about the same. Well, all right. Now, you recently went back to work for U.S. Airways. I mean, in the in the sky, did you not? Yes, I did. Just a few weeks ago, I was reunited with my first officer from January 15th, Jeff Skiles. And we flew from Charlotte to New York and from New York back to Charlotte. And not only did I fly with Jeff Skiles, but the air traffic controller, whose voice you hear on that recording that's been played so many times, Patrick Harton, came to work early that day just so he could work our departure from LaGuardia like he did on January 15th. Well, something else that you said in the book, which is probably more true now than ever, which is that people, they don't pay attention to that Walter Cronkite guy in the, in the copy. He's just the guy who drove the plane. Now you got probably thousands of people wondering, gee, I'll bet I flew with Sully at least once. Well, I mean, I've had people tell me that, and but then they described the place and the time, and I know I wasn't there then. But I have lots of colleagues who also exercise great care in every flight, and there are hundreds of thousands of aviation workers, mechanics, flight attendants, all kinds of trades who work every day very hard, to, whose dedication is to keep passengers safe. You know, in all the interviews that you've done in all these months now, I have never seen a hint in anything of you that says, gosh, I'm such a hero now. You you are like the the guy who doesn't want to be a hero. Well, I, cer I certainly wasn't seeking to be a hero. But I also realize why people feel the way they do about this event and and how it makes them feel. And I certainly want I certainly don't want to diminish their gift to me of their gratitude. And it is a great gift. And it's a gift that enables me to have a greater voice and to have these amazing opportunities to try to make a difference in so many ways. Say something else. My first officer, Jeff Skiles, and I, just a few days after we landed in the Hudson, when this was still fresh in our minds and we weren't watching the media and, and we didn't know yet how big the story ultimately would, would become. But when it first became evident that this was going to be a pretty big story, we felt an intense obligation to do as much good for our profession in every way we could for as long as we could while we had this attention focused on us. Do you like birds? I have no problem with birds. <laughs> we just have to find a better way to coexist with them. Chesley Sullenberger retired from U.S. Airways in 2010 after a 30-year commercial aviation career. Today, he's a well-known aviation safety advocate and commentator. And Tom Hanks portrayed Sully in a 2016 movie. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, we all remember him as Helmsman Sulu from the original Star Trek, or as a widely quoted and retweeted internet commentator, a 1994 interview with actor George Takei. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. <laughs>